So this morning we come back to the Gospel of John after I think it's been five weeks since we were last here. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to being back. And, and uh, one of you this morning said the same thing. So that was an encouragement. And last time we were here in John, we, we saw Peter's, Peter's I am not. You might remember his I am not in contrast with Jesus earlier saying, I am he. So in in the garden, Jesus identifying himself, I am he and his sovereign authority, and and Peter then in the courtyard of Caiaphas and Annas saying, I am not. Um, Just to give a perspective of where things are and the timing of things, Jesus was arrested Thursday night. Now, I'm, I'm stating this as a matter of fact. Scholars disagree. Some say it was Wednesday, and we won't get into all that, but I think it's quite positive that it was Thursday night, late Thursday night, after he had already eaten the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. And so they would eat the Passover meal at the start of a new day, which the Jewish day went rent from sundown to sundown. So when they ate the meal Thursday evening after sundown, it was the beginning of the new day, uh, Friday, for them. But I'm going to stick with our way of reckoning time. So Thursday night, they eat the Passover meal, they go out to the garden. Late Thursday night, Jesus was arrested. And after relating Jesus' arrest... John tells us then about his nighttime interview with Annas, the high priest, who was also the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the official high priest appointed by the Romans. So you you, you see the progression. During the night at some point, he's in the courtyard there with Annas. John then skips entirely the formal trial with Caiaphas. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they make a big deal out of that one. John skips it. So it would seem from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that a good deal of that second trial, so he had the trial with Annas, as it were, then he has a second trial with Caiaphas, a good, that took place in the very, very early hours of Friday morning. So Jesus has been up all night, certainly. Um, now it's early Friday morning, still dark. He's being tried before Caiaphas, before the sun is risen, which is illegal according to Jewish law. But... Then, once the morning came, probably around 6 o'clock in the morning, um, it would seem that they repeated the trial uh, in order to make it legal. Um, So, again, being sticklers for doing things technically right all the while they're doing things wrong. So now, given that progression, we pick up with where we left off in verse 28 of chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest, into the praetorium, the Roman governor's residence in Jerusalem, when he was was staying in Jerusalem, and it was early. So likely, it's now between 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock in the morning, Friday morning. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very explicit that Jesus already ate the Passover. If you go read their their passages, I don't see how you can find a way around believing that Jesus ate the Passover the night before 
So then, how can John say that the Jews wanted to avoid defilement so they could eat the Passover? If the Passover had already been eaten. And this is where some people move the date of his, of his arrest and one day earlier. But I just want to point out that Passover can refer not just to the Passover meal itself, but also to the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed the Passover. So you had the Passover on one day, and then it led right into a week-long feast called Unleavened Bread. So Luke says in Luke 22, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. So it's, it's very simple. That was drawing near. So the point seems to be the Jews did not want to get contract any kind of ritual defilement Because if they did, the law said that they couldn't observe the Passover. And then they would have to wait until the next month to observe it. They want to be able to observe to eat the Passover for all seven days. And what was it that might defile a Jew if he went into a Gentile's house? In Acts chapter 10, Peter said to Cornelius and the others who were gathered at his house, Uh, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Likely, in Peter's case, he's thinking about the possibility of becoming defiled by touching unclean food. It says in the law, if you touch touch an unclean, the carcass of an unclean animal, which the carcass includes the meat on your plate, right? If you touch the carcass of an unclean animal, you're, you're... defiled. You become ceremonially unclean. Or especially if you happen to eat food that you didn't know was unclean, but that is, you might become defiled. What here in John, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, their concern might be, if they go into Pilate's house, there might be leaven somewhere in the house. And the rule for the Jews was, you had to search your house, you had to get rid of all leaven out of your house. So you might be able to understand a bit of that. If I go into Pilate's house, he hasn't, he hasn't purged his house of all leaven, so you could contract uncleanness. Another fear might have been that Gentiles, as horrible as this is and sounds, they were believed to bury aborted babies in their homes or flush them down their drains. And so to enter a house where there was a dead body uh, would result in you being unclean for seven days. So all these things, they're, they're all very conscious of this. I can't, I can't step foot in Pilate's house because it's the feast of Passover. If I get ritually defiled, then I can't observe the feast. In other words, the law did not actually say you couldn't go into a Gentile's house. That's not what the law said. But the Jews were simply taking what we might call extra precautions. Since in a Gentile's house, they were far more likely to become ritually defiled. Now, so far, just given that, we can't necessarily blame the Jews. It sounds like actually they're doing the right thing. Therefore, they themselves did not enter into Pilate's house, the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. But of course, to us and to John, the irony 
is obvious. One of the very early church fathers says this, they thought their Passover worship offered service to God. He's speaking somewhat ironically himself because Jesus said an hour is coming for everyone who kills you and they're killing Jesus to think he is offering service to God. But in fact, it only made them more defiled than they were before they purified themselves. The Jewish leaders were so deeply concerned, and this is, we can mock them in a sense, but let's just realize that they actually were deeply concerned with ritual, ceremonial purity. And that was a kind of purity they read about in the law. They were so concerned about not missing any part of this Passover feast and the celebration of God's deliverance of of his people from out of Egypt that they won't step foot inside a Gentile's house. And yet all the while, they're seeking from this same Gentile whose house they won't enter, they're seeking from him death for an innocent man. Just to read another commentator, how he puts it, he says they they hold fast to the ceremonial law while, while they seek the execution of the promised deliverer of Israel, the Son of God, the Savior. In their, here's the key word, in their zeal to eat the Passover, is there anything wrong with that? No. We ought, they ought to have been zealous to eat the Passover. But in that zeal, they unwittingly help to fulfill its significance. Through their demanding the death of the Lamb of God, at the same time, here's the terrible irony, shutting themselves out from its saving efficacy. John, one thing John's gospel is known for is the way that John puts, just puts irony, weaves it into the book. And John doesn't say it explicitly. He doesn't, he doesn't say it outright. But the way he includes this shows what he intends. We hear in his words the intended irony. Listen to them again. They themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. And so we're compelled to ask if they could think that they're seeking to avoid defilement all the while they're being truly and ultimately defiled. What is it then that truly defiles a person? It's not something we we really often think about. We think about sin, we know sin, we know guilt. But, but what we're thinking about here is the defilement of sin. How it, how it truly renders us filthy. Jesus said that it's what proceeds from the heart. And so it's a spiritual defilement. No matter how clean, no matter how much we scrub ourselves on the outside, right? No matter how much religious appearance 
that we put on, how much of the externals of religion we pursue, if we're not clean on the inside, then we're defiled. And so I asked myself, you can ask yourself, how often are we blinded? And you think of how blinded these Jews had to have been. How often are we blinded to the true nature of our sin by an external self-righteousness? That's the worst thing about our righteousness is that it blinds us to our sin, our self-righteousness. How often are we so zealous for the outward forms of righteousness and all the finer points of religion that we end up missing entirely the far more significant sins that we daily pursue. I mean, I use the word pursue carefully, not as though we're running out purposefully, consciously after things, but that our hearts, that our hearts are pursuing to which we're blinded or we excuse or we justify, and we justify under the cloak of our zeal for righteousness. How often do we look at the externals and not at the heart, at the ritual and not at the spiritual which it figured, which it symbolized? The commentator I just quoted says of our passage this morning, and, and again, I felt it was so well put, no more eloquent example than this can be found of the ability of religious people to be meticulous about external regulations of religion while being wholly at variance with God. What a sobering thought that is, isn't it? And then how diligently then should we be praying as the psalmist prayed? And this was, this was a comfort to me to, to come from that reality, to, to just pray this prayer with the psalmist, to confess these realities. Who can discern his errors? That's the first step, to admit that we can be blinded, that we don't see. And then he prays, acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back. He's, he's asking God to do this work. He's not saying, I'm, I won't do that. Okay, I've got to be determined. I won't do that. He comes to God and he says, Lord, God, acquit me of hidden faults. Keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then, then I will be blameless, right? Pure, undefiled, then. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. We'll come back to that in a moment, but, but it's important to point out that John's main point is not that this should serve as, as an example or a lesson for us. It is an example, it is a lesson that may have been in John's mind, but it's not his main point. His main point is to show the total hypocrisy of Jesus' accusers so that he can emphasize all the more how unjust Everything is that surrounds his arrest and his trial and his execution. From start to finish, this is, a whole, this is a farce. It's total injustice. That's his point, and we're going to see why that is in just a moment. The Jews, we know, would not enter Pilate's residence. So we continue in verse 29. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate is introduced here with no introduction, okay? He just suddenly appears, and that's because everyone knew Pilate. 
Pilate's even named in the Apostles' Creed. He's named in the Nicene Creed. Um, um, Paul uh, mentions Pilate in 1 Timothy 6 in, a, in a, almost a poetic way. So like, like he's, he's part of the tradition. But one commentator describes Pilate from the historical evidence, both in the Bible and elsewhere, as a morally weak, vacillating man who tried to hide his flaws under shows of stubbornness and brutality. His rule earned him the loathing of the Jewish people, small groups of whom violently protested and were put down with savage ferocity. So in Luke, we, we hear about certain Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. I think the important thing for us to realize is that Pilate cares nothing for justice. He cares nothing for Jesus. He cares nothing for the Jews. Um, he's just pretty much a despicable man. It's this Pilate who went out to the Jews early on that Friday morning. Sometimes I, we wonder, well, did they, wake, did they wake Pilate up that early to start court? And it was interesting to me to find out in, in my studies this week that Roman courts routinely opened w- earlier than they got Jesus there. So he might have already had another case, who knows, because they, they started very early in the morning, before probably even Jesus had arrived. No doubt Pilate already knew about the arrest of Jesus because his own soldiers had been involved in the arrest just the night before. So he must have been somewhat expecting them. He went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So here we go, the formal trial. That's like, okay, he sits down probably. He's probably got his judgment seat moved outside and he sits down and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? The trial opens. Um, But that's not what the Jewish leaders wanted, and it's not what they expected. Because we read in verse 30, They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. You hear what they're saying, right? They're saying, don't ask us what accusation. It doesn't really even matter. Just trust us. He's an evil man. So the Jews had expected Pilate to just kind of rubber stamp their verdict that they've already announced, pronounced in the middle of the night. They're not interested in a Roman trial. They do not want a Roman trial. What do they want? A Roman verdict. They want a Roman execution. And so they say to Pilate, why should our accusation be of any concern to you? Now the real problem for the Jews is that Jesus has been condemned in a Jewish court For blasphemy. But they know that in a Roman court, a charge of blasphemy is not going to hold any water. So at first, they just refuse to give Pilate any clear answer. They just answer him kind of vaguely. If this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. Take our word. He's a dangerous man, and he needs to die. But Pilate, we know what Pilate's like, right? He's not in the mood to be used by his own subjects, for their own ends. He doesn't care about justice. He just wants to win win the round and prove that he's the boss, that he's in charge, that he's superior. And all the while, 
Where is Jesus? Well, he's not even in the scene. He, he's, invis- like he's, he's backstage, as it were, still in Pilate's house, inside Pilate's house, waiting, silent, backstage. So coming back out on the stage, verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your, to your law. You hear what he's saying. If you're not interested in a Roman trial, why do you want a Roman verdict? If you don't care about a Roman trial, why do you want a Roman execution? They had their own courts. The Jews did have their own courts. They were perfectly free to enforce all their own penalties. Um, So they could imprison Jesus. The Romans had no problem with that. Take Jesus and throw him in your prison. They could inflict corporal punishment. So they could give Jesus 39 lashes. Take Jesus and, and flog him. And maybe, maybe, Pilate is even daring the Jews to find out if he might look the other way if they put Jesus to death by stoning, which was the Jewish method of execution. Later on, Pilate is going to say, take him and crucify him yourself. Well, they knew they couldn't do that. The Jews could not crucify someone. But, but maybe Pilate's implying here, Take him and judge him by your own law. That means punish him, imprison him, flog him, stone him. Maybe I'll look the other way. Again, if they're not interested in a Roman trial, why do they run a Roman verdict? So take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And obviously, once again, Pilate doesn't care about justice. He's only, he's only full of hate and animosity towards the Jews. And once again, while the Roman governor and the Jewish chief priests are engaged in all this maneuvering. Here they're maneuvering outside. Where is Jesus? The object. Jesus is the object of all their maneuvering, right? And he's backstage, standing still, or sitting, I don't know, but silently, for, all, for our purposes. The, the, the imprisoned and bound, as you might call it, victim here, And yet we see, not really. So we come to the second half of verse 31. The Jews, in response to Pilate, said, It is not lawful for us to kill anyone. I think, now when I said it's not lawful for us to kill anyone, some of you might have said, is that really what it says? And if you've got your Bibles open, you'll know that you have a little different translation, which isn't a wrong one, but we miss something that's happening here. So I think there's two levels we can read this. At one level, there's the plain meaning of the Jews, which we're going to come to in a moment. But at another level, what does John lots of times do? He's got this thing called irony. And I think that's what we're seeing again here. There's a specific Greek word for murder. Phanuo is the Greek word for murder. And obviously the Jews don't use that word here. They're They're not saying to Pilate, Um, it's not lawful for us, Pilate, to murder anyone. That's not what they're saying. There's another Greek word, though, that refers to putting a person to death in more of a legal way, like a capital punishment, a legal execution. Thanatao. But the Jews don't use that word here either. That would have been the best word in light of what they're wanting and thinking. What they use is a very generic word, that simply means 
to cause someone's death, whether it's by violent means, usually by violent means, with or without intent, and with or without any legal justification, maybe with legal justification, maybe without legal justification, it, it simply means to kill, to, to cause someone's death. So in other words, the word they use could go either way, murder or legal execution, depending on the context. Now, in this context, what are the Jews talking about? They're not talking about murder. They're, they're talking about killing with legal justification. In other words, it's not lawful for us under your rule, Pilate, under Roman rule, to carry out the death penalty. But hold on now. We step back and we read this and we say, given their mood, do these people look like murderers? Is this a lynching crowd? Right? Given their mood, given the innocence of the man whose death they seek, whose, whose guilt they really cannot prove, we hear them unwittingly condemning themselves. Listen, listen to their words. It is not lawful for us to kill anyone. John sees the irony because, in fact, in In any other context, in any other context, those words, it is not lawful, what law would you expect to be referred to being on the lips of Jews? It would not be the Roman law, but their own law, the law of Moses. And so it's in this light that then we're reminded, if we've been carefully reading John's gospel, of all these other passages all throughout um, the previous 18 chapters. Chapter 5, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. John chapter 7, Jesus was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Same Greek word, John 11, from that day on they planned together to kill him again. And then Jesus, in most interestingly, said to the Jews in chapter 7, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you does the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Contrary to the law. In light of all that, listen again to what the Jewish leaders said to Pilate. It is not lawful for us to kill anyone. I just ask you, how can you not hear? I don't. I mean, how, I mean, this isn't making something up. How can we not hear the Jews unwittingly condemning themselves by their own mouths and by their own law? And yet, here's the sad and terrible irony: they're completely blinded by the hardness of their own hearts to the true nature of their law-breaking. They confess, it is not lawful for us to kill anyone. All the while, they break the law by seeking the death of an innocent man. And so we see this portrait of people, of men, so blinded that on the one hand, they're zealous for the law. 
They're careful to avoid any ceremonial defilement they might pick up by entering a Gentile's house. Ironically, they confess, it is not lawful for us to kill anyone. And on the other hand, in the very midst of this zeal for the law, and that's the scary thing, in the very midst of that zeal, they're breaking the same law. By killing an innocent man, and we know not just an innocent man, but the Son of God. The Son of God. Let's be aware then how, how zealous we can be for the law, for God's ways, and then at the same time, in, in the midst of that zeal, be breaking that, that very law, those very ways that we claim to be zealous for. What a fearful thing it is to see how blinded we can be. So I'll ask the same two questions again. How often are we blinded, even in lesser ways, to the true nature of our sin by an external self-righteousness? And how often are we so zealous for the outward forms of righteousness, the finer points of religion that we miss entirely, the far more significant sins we daily pursue? We hear it often, perhaps, but we can't probably hear it too often. That it's the heart, it's the heart that matters. The true defilement proceeds from the heart. So let's keep close attention on our hearts and pray, even as the psalmist prayed, acquit me of hidden faults, keep me from presumptuous sins. But once again, even though this is an important lesson for us to see, and and John highlights it, his main point is not the lesson for us. The primary point is to show the hypocrisy of Jesus' accusers in order to emphasize all the more the unlawfulness. Everything about this is wrong. Surrounding his arrest, his trial, his execution. And all the while, where is Jesus? He's still... Invisible to us in this passage, standing silent, out of sight, inside Pilate's residence, backstage, as it were. Now let's look at the meaning of the Jews' words to Pilate as they intended them. We saw the irony of the words, which they were oblivious to. Um, but now let's see what they meant. And this is, very, this is equally, if not more important, for us to see. The Jews said to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to kill anyone. Now we already know they've ironically accused themselves because it sounds like they're saying, yeah, Moses said you shall not murder. And it's not lawful for us to murder anyone, which is what they're doing on their side of things. But, But there's another irony here, more hypocrisy. Because, yes, the Jews' right to enforce the death penalty had been taken away from them by the Romans. The Romans said, no, only we can put people to death. You can do everything else, but not not the capital punishment. But we know the Jews were not always so concerned with doing what was lawful. They didn't always care about the Roman rules. And apparently, the Romans at times would turn a blind eye to Jewish executions. So as long as the Jews executed a person who wasn't, who wasn't going to, if they, that execution wasn't going to stir up lots of trouble and uproar and all of that, and, um, the, the Romans might look, look, look aside and let them do what wasn't lawful. 
This seems to be what happened in the stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 7. Furthermore, we read in John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Not just to throw at him. I mean, to throw and to to kill. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So if twice before the Jews had been on the verge of stoning Jesus, why then are they suddenly so intent on abiding by Roman rules? Something is fishy here, right? Something's, something's not right. We know what we've already seen ever since chapter 5. They've been trying to kill Jesus. Remember chapter 5? For this reason, they were seeking all the more to kill him. Chapter 11. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. What were they planning all that time? What kind of death were they planning for Jesus? We see how exasperated the chief priests and Pharisees were in chapter 12. The chief priests planned to kill Lazarus also. What, were they going to get Roman approval for killing Lazarus? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So my question for you is, do you really think that the Jews were planning all this time to follow all the Roman rules about what they could and couldn't do? Were they planning the, all this time and all their time of wanting to stone Jesus and kill him? Were they, we need to get Jesus legally sentenced by Pilate. Not at all. So then why haven't they killed Jesus already? Why haven't they done it? Well, humanly speaking, the only reason is because Jesus was so well known. He was so popular with the people. Mark says, Mark 14, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how... After seizing him in secret, they might kill him. There's no mention of Pilate. Pilate's not who they're thinking about. They're not thinking about Roman authorities. They are going to kill Jesus. For they were saying, not during the festival, lest there be a riot of the people. So if you want to know what the plan was, the general idea was to arrest Jesus secretly, away from the crowds, pass sentence, right? Official formal sentence, And then have him stoned, hopefully, without attracting too much attention. Why stoned? Well, they picked up stones twice before, and stoning was the punishment prescribed in the law of Moses for blasphemy, which is the sin of which they've accused Jesus. The problem is, right, now, the point, we have not spent much time with Jesus here. And if we're sitting here thinking, oh, this is all like, oh, what's going on? That's, that's kind of the point. This is just a mess. We see the motives of everyone. We see the duplicity of everyone, the, the hypocrisy, the falseness of everyone. And this is what's ruling the day, it would seem. And now we have further problems for the Jews because Jesus is such a public figure. And so their plan to arrest Jesus secretly, have him tried and sentenced and stoned without too much attention, that's proving not to be very practical. And now guess what? Jesus forced their hand. 
Because Jesus revealed to Judas in the upper room that he knew of his arrangement with the chief priests. And Jesus told Judas on the very night of Passover, which the Jews said we must not do it on Passover. Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly. And so now, without perhaps almost knowing how it happened, the Jewish leadership have Jesus in custody. The first time and only time they've ever had him in custody in the middle of Passover festival, when Jerusalem is thronging with Jews, many of whom are from Galilee, where Jesus was most popular and most well-known. This is not what the Jewish leaders had planned. It is not what they had looked for. And so this is what forces the Jews to accept the fact we're going to have to follow Roman rules. We're going to have to do things lawfully. If they can have Jesus sentenced to death and executed by the Romans, then the Jews who love Jesus and with whom he's so popular can't point their fingers at them in the same, in the same manner. Maybe they can avoid uproar by the crowds. And so also the potential for Roman reprisals, right? Because they really weren't supposed to do executions. And in the end, after all, won't a public Roman crucifixion make a stronger statement than a quiet, quote, Jewish stoning? What is it to be? Stoning or crucifixion? When Pilate says to the Jews, take him yourselves, judge him according to your law, we now have got inside the Jews' minds, we understand now their response, it is not lawful for us to kill anyone. It's not really Roman law they care about. It's not lawful for us to kill anyone, which is to say, he must not be stoned by us. He must be crucified by the Romans. He must not be stoned by us, as had always been our plan. He must be crucified by the Romans, which has now been forced upon us. This is now our plan by necessity. And all the while, where's Jesus? He's still standing silent. Backstage, as it were, a prisoner condemned to death by the Jewish council. But now we ask the question, in the midst of all the maneuvering, and there's been a lot of it, of all the bad blood, of all the hypocrisy, of all the plotting, in the midst of all the evil and the injustice, who's in control? The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to kill anyone. And after, at this point, though we know this, these are the most shocking, most awesome, most astonishing, most wonderful words that we could ever have expected to read. They said this in order that the word of Jesus, which he spoke, would be fulfilled signifying by what kind of death 
he was about to die. So in this scene of wickedness, and of chaos, and of just mess, who's in control? It's Jesus who's in complete control. As he submits himself to his Father's will. It is Jesus who's in complete control as he accomplishes the work which the Father has given him to do. It's Jesus in complete control because outside Pilate's residence, in your handout, it's his word which he spoke that's being fulfilled. Ah, that's, that's, sometimes, you know, we know these things, but we see it again and again throughout these scriptures in different and, and new and wonderful ways. But after all this message, in which all we've seen is disaster, the corruption, uh, the hypocrisy, the lies, the deceits, to see in the midst of that the beauty of our Lord's word being fulfilled. You see, John's point here isn't just the method of execution. It's not just that, well, Jesus, Jesus knew which one it was going to be, stoning or crucifixion. No, that's, that's, not, that's not the point, and we know that. It is that, but it's more than that. And we know that because in John, the word cross or crucify has never been used to this point. It's never been used. So where is this word of which, the word of Jesus which he spoke? Where is it signifying by what kind of death he was about to die? Jesus has never said in John, I will be crucified. He's never spoken of the cross that he was going to in John. So what does John have in mind when he says, when he makes this statement? All the way back in chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing from myself, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In chapter 12, Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But, John says, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. We know Jesus' life was not taken from him. We've made this point before, but I'll make it again as often as the scriptures make the point. (laughs) He laid it down for us. Even, Even more amazingly, think about it like this. He chose the cross. 
rather than stoning in obedience to the Father for the joy set before him in order that we might look to him who was, who was what? Who was lifted up. And in looking to him, we might have in him eternal life. So in John, what do we see? John, you know, John we, don't, we never see the word cross or crucify, not until, I believe it's chapter 19. We still haven't seen it. In John, all we see is this language of being lifted up, lifted up. Here in John chapter 18, we hear the Jews saying, it's not lawful for us to kill anyone, which means he's not going to be stoned, he's going to be lifted up. And now we understand that all all along it's been Jesus choosing not only the day of his death, but the manner of his death. Because by choosing his death on the Passover feast, he also chose the crucifixion. In John, the weakness of the cross, and you can, you can guess and probably figure out a number, if not all of these blanks, but the weakness of the cross is the power of God. The foolishness of the cross is the wisdom of God. The shame of the cross is the glory of God. The suffering of the cross is the triumph of God. The curse of the cross is the salvation of God. And so in John, the cross signifies, brothers and sisters, when you think of the cross, think of these two words. It is the lifting up of Jesus. And why was he lifted up? So that whoever looks upon him will in him have eternal life. In John, the cross signifies the lifting up of Jesus so that he might draw all men, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, to himself. And so we see that in the midst of all the maneuvering and all the bad blood between the Roman governor and the Jewish subjects and all the hypocrisy and all the plotting and all the evil and injustice, all along, it's Jesus standing silent backstage, out of sight, It's he who's in control. It's he who has chosen the day of his death. It's he who has chosen the cross, the manner of his death, in obedience to his Father's will. It's the word of Jesus which he spoke that's being fulfilled outside. And all so that the glory of God might be revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. You see, if the Jews had had it their way, Jesus would have been stoned. But in a sense, it was Jesus who had it his way because he was obedient to his father and so he went not to his death by stoning but to his death by crucifixion. Are we then looking to him who was lifted up on a cross and in the context of John who has now been lifted up to the right hand of the Father? 
Are we willing to deny ourselves looking at Jesus and his obedience to the Father's will and going to the cross and choosing the cross for us? Are we willing to deny ourselves and take up our own cross and follow him? This might seem like, at first, like a random scripture to to close with. But the goal of all of this, not yet to quote Paul, but we've seen the hypocrisy of the Jews, right? Their zeal for the law and yet their breaking of the law. Their zeal for ritual purity and yet their inner spiritual defilement. Brothers and sisters, how are we to avoid this? How are we to avoid the same sin, the same hypocrisy, the same external forms while we lack all the power, the true power of godliness? How are we to avoid the same thing that they fell into, the same trap? And the reality is we avoid that by truly lifting up our eyes to Jesus, lifted up on the cross and finding and knowing in him our forgiveness, our salvation, our eternal life. And it's when we have that that we're truly pure. It's when we look to him that we're truly undefiled, blameless, upright in God's sight. And so I love what Paul then says when he writes, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would that you would guard and protect us all from from being blinded to the sins we we pursue by our zeal for quote righteousness. Lord, help us Help us to see that even though the things we so zealously pursue may be good and right things, they may be true things, things not to be thrown away or abandoned, yet so often it can become the cover for the breaking of the very law we claim to love. Lord, please bring us back as we see this this sobering and fearsome, fearful example of these of the Jews and their zeal and yet their blindness bring us always 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 back to what's in the heart that we might truly be pure truly clean washed in the blood of Christ and accepted in him lord we pray we we thank you for our savior for our lord who knowingly willingly not only followed each step of the way, but even even chose in his own obedience to your will the day, the time, and even the manner of his death for our sake and our salvation, that he was not stoned, but lifted up, bearing the curse of one hung on a tree, so that in him we be forgiven, that we might not die, but have everlasting life. Lord, may the goal of this instruction be accomplished and achieved in all of us as we call on your name each day from pure hearts, longing to live lives that are pleasing in your sight. And we thank you and and praise you again for, for your spirit that you give to work these things in us. In Jesus' name, amen.